Hello, and welcome to this week's Reorg Europe podcast. My name is Sean Qureshi, and I'm a legal analyst here in Reorg's London office. On this week's podcast, we will take a look at a new framework agreement announced in Turkey, which is aimed at creating a rescue culture for Turkish debtors with senior legal analyst Chetna Mystery. Additionally, Noor Siher, an analyst in our London office, will talk about Puma Energy, which is part of our new Reorg Asia product. Last week in the English courts, the Marme swaps trial against RBS commenced. Bankrupt real estate group Marme is making a claim against RBS and certain other bank defendants, alleging that RBS's manipulation of the Euribor rate was grounds for misrepresentation. RBS are making a counterclaim against the Sp- Spanish property SPV. In other news, for Astaldi, ISDA announced that a bankruptcy credit event had occurred in relation to both of its 2014 and updated 2003 transactions as a result of the company's filing for Concado in Bianco on the 27th of September. ISDA has decided to hold an auction in respect of the 2014 transactions on a date to be determined later in October. So let's start with Puma. Nor, could you give us a brief introduction for the company and situation? Puma is a midstream and downstream oil retailer headquartered in Singapore. It is one of the first companies we have started to cover under our new Rayog Asia product. Puma has operations in 49 countries, mainly in Latin America, Africa, Asia Pacific and Europe. So what has happened is that it's 2024 and 2026 bonds traded down after the second quarter results revealed a squeeze on margins. Margins have contracted across all geographies. However, the most significant fall was in Africa and Asia Pacific where the margins fell 4% and 3% respectively. These fall in margins was mainly on the back of price regulations and currency devaluations in countries like Angola. In an environment of rising oil prices and strengthening US dollars, risk for Puma remains that more countries might turn to an oil price freeze like the one in Angola which is likely to put a further pressure on Puma's margins. Before we delve into the details, could you also walk us through the capital structure? Sure. So Puma has about 1.9 billion net debt and net leverage stands at three times. If we subtract inventories from the gross gross debt as per the company, however, it is debatable if the inventories in downstream oil business are marketable enough to be subtracted from debt. Net leverage and debt before subtracting inventories jumps to 3 billion and 4.6 Gross debt is 3.7 billion, which consists of 600 million in OPCO debt, 1.4 billion in senior facilities, and 1.7 billion in bond debt. Although net leverage before subtracting inventories rose to 4.6 times recently, however, the capital structure looks strong. It has a balanced maturity profile and significant liquidity. The company's earliest bond maturity is not until 2024, and its liquidity stands at 3 billion as of June 2018. 
That doesn't sound too bad. What does the liquidity consist of? So as of June 2018, Puma had $600 million in cash, $1 billion undrawn credit facilities, and $1.5 billion undrawn shareholder loan. The shareholder loan is referred to as the Trafigura loan, which consists of $500 million committed and $1 billion uncommitted revolving facility, bearing an interest rate of 8% plus LIBOR, maturing 2023. This loan remained undrawn as per the second quarter results. Noor, you mentioned Trafigura a lot here. What is the relationship between the two companies? To answer that, let's quickly go through the corporate structure. Puma is 49.5% owned by Trafigura, 28% by Angola State Oil Company, Senegal, and 15.5% by Cochin Holdings. Trafigura is Puma's preferred supplier of refined oil. In 2017, Trafigura accounted for two-thirds of the total petroleum supply for Puma. Puma has a long-term supply agreement with Trafigura, which grant exclusive supply rights to Trafigura, subject to certain exceptions. In my view, these exclusive supply rights held by Trafigura are not competitive and might imply that Puma is paying a higher price to procure its refined oil as compared to its competitors. Besides the supply agreement, Puma is the largest supplier of midstream and downstream services for Trafigura. So I think this two-way relationship between Trafigura and Puma is very interesting. So let's get back to the issue. You mentioned Angola. What are the key issues for the company there? Okay, let me start by giving a brief introduction on Angola. Angola's economy is highly reliant on oil export. It was badly hit by fallen oil prices in 2015, and since then, the country's foreign reserves have declined. In order to protect the foreign currency reserves, Angola ditched its currency peg, $2, in January. Its currency has fallen 61% against the dollar ever since. Now, the increasing oil prices and currency devaluation has caused a hyperinflation in the country. In order to tackle that hyperinflation, the government has implemented an oil price freeze. Let me caution you here, Sean. Information on the price freeze is very limited, but I think the way the price freeze works is that government absorbs the increased cost of oil and then sells it to retailers like Puma after a subsidy. Puma can then charge a fixed margin set by the government before selling it in its retail stations. The Angolan government is supposed to periodically adjust the fixed margins based on an increase in oil prices and currency devaluation. However, it seems that Puma's margins in local currency have stayed the same, despite its currency losing 61% of its value. The fixed local currency margins translate into much lower dollar amounts when reported in dollars. 
Puma's management is currently in discussions with the Angolan government to update the margins. However, no result or no change is anticipated before year-end. But doesn't Puma operate in 49 countries? And Angola is just one of them. I mean, why is this? What is happening in Angola, which is so important? So, although Angola is just one country out of 49, it is a country where Puma has one of the largest presence in Africa. And Africa contributes about 35% to the total EBITDA of Puma. This makes Angola quite important. Moreover, the adverse effect of Angola's price regulation and currency devaluation can be replicated in other regulated markets. And regulated markets almost account for 74% of Puma's profits. With oil price going up recently and strengthening dollar against the local currencies, more governments are likely to consider an oil price freeze like the one in Angola. If oil price freezes become a reality in other countries as well, it is likely to put a further pressure on Puma's already falling margins. Okay, so margins have been falling, but how do the cash flows look? Well, free cash flows for Puma have been highly variable in the past. There were negative in 2015 and 2016 due to a high capital expenditure driven by massive spend on organic growth. In 2017, although capital expenditure fell 41% year over year, free cash flows were still negative as $200 million of cash was tied up in working capital. Recently, however, free cash flows have been improving as Puma is focusing on reducing capex and getting the maximum value out of its existing assets. In the last 12 months, as of June 2018, CapEx fell down a further 24%, which resulted in a positive free cash flow of $74 million. In the upcoming quarters, CapEx is likely to remain low. However, cash tied up in working capital might increase. As oil prices go up, the cost of replenishing inventories also goes up. So if you could summarize the pros and cons and maybe tell us if there's any trigger. So I would say there is no one specific trigger. Each geography is being impacted by its own different reasons. However, price regulations and local currency devaluation in countries like Angola do remain an important risk. Pros for the business are strong liquidity, balanced maturity profile, and positive free cash flows, which are likely to stay that way given the companies focusing on cutting down the growth capex. Thanks, Noor. Now on to our Turkish banking update with Chetna. Chetna, the Bank Association of Turkey, BAT, has issued a new framework agreement on financial restructuring. Can you tell us a bit about it? What does it aim to do and when will it be implemented? Thanks, Shan. The new framework agreement seeks to address financial restructuring in the country. Essentially, the agreement, which was finalised on September the 11th, is designed to facilitate the rescue and turnaround of Turkish debtors, which are temporarily failing to make repayments on their financial debt. 
The framework agreement does not provide definitive information on the implementation timeline, although it does suggest it will be implemented in the two years following its approval, binding only on the banks who sign it. All deposit banks, development and investment banks operating in Turkey are obliged to become members of BAT, according to its website, within a month of receiving their permit to operate in the country. Banks operating in Turkey must implement decisions taken by the authorized bodies of BAT. The structure will allow the Turkish debtors to fulfill their debt obligations under reasonable conditions within a prescribed period of time, whilst also taking into account the fundraising capabilities of the debtors, according to the document. Okay, so how will the framework be implemented? Will it have legislative power? Also, how will it deal with international and cross-border issues? So basically, the proposal is unclear with regards to implementation of many of its features, including whether the framework will ever become part of Turkish legislation, as in its current form, it seems to be nothing more than an arrangement or understanding between commercial lenders. In this nascent form, lacking legislative grounding or any remit to the country's courts, enforcement and implementation are obvious areas of concern. The arrangement remains domestic in nature, not overtly purporting to compromise foreign governed debt. It appears to apply only to commercial borrowers with a threshold of at least 100 million Turkish lira in total principal debts as of the date of application. So what are the key features of the framework? How will the proposals be approved? So basically, key features include the implementation of a standstill period during which members of a consortium of creditors institutions, or CCI, will agree a financial restructuring proposal, or FRP, for the distressed debtor. The FRP will need to be approved by two-thirds of members of the CCI, in contrast to the 75% by value threshold and 30% by number consent thresholds for all other actions taken by the CCI. The FRP appears to respect the absolute priority rule and cannot bind secured creditors. There is the ability for members of the CCI to participate proportionately in the provision of dip financing, which will of course benefit from super priority status. So, are the Turkish courts involved? What would happen if there were to be a dispute between the creditors? So, one of the most striking features of the proposal is that it appears to be completely an out-of-court process. Neither the standstill process nor the approval of the FRP appear to require any remit to the Turkish courts. A panel of referees will be established to deal with the settlement of disputes that may arise on the failure of creditor institutions to fulfill their obligations. There is no real guidance on what role, if any, the courts of Turkey will play in sanctioning the final contract. There doesn't seem to be a clear appeals process either. Which entities will be subject to the proposals in the framework? Are there any procedural limits or bars? So the framework will only be eligible to institutions with at least 100 million Turkish lira in total principal debts as of the date of its application to restructure. A further condition to eligibility is that no legal proceedings can have been commenced by any creditor institution against the relevant debtor. If legal proceedings are commenced, 
as of the date of application for the financial restructuring proposal, debtors can also be included in the restructuring so long as a maximum 25% of their total debts or consolidated amount is covered by one or more creditor institutions. Debtors which are covered by an adjudication of bankruptcy will not be included within the scope of the framework. So in order to decide whether a debtor can fall under the framework remit, the CCI will determine the financial situation and feasibility of the debtor. The framework can only proceed with the consent of the CCI. Great. So are there any other further salient features which both investors and creditors in Turkey should be aware of? The restructuring framework, as I might have alluded to before, cannot cut through existing collateral provided to creditors. However, other encumbrances on debtor property will be converted to cash and distributed according to the restructuring plan. There is an obligation of confidentiality on the parties who are involved in the process. Further, the restructuring framework can be amended during its implementation at the request of at least two members of the CCI and with CCI consent. Um, additional debtor in possession style loans can be extended to the debtor and will be given super senior priority. The loan will be made by the CCI and proportionately by all members of the group. However, with the approval of the CCI, there is the option to borrow from non-CCI creditors. Lastly, there is a 90-day time limit for the restructuring framework to be decided. However, it can be also extended with the consent of the CCI. Thanks, Chetna. That's all from this week's Reorg Europe podcast. Until next week, from all of the Reorg team, goodbye.